Welcome to the Littler Diversity and Inclusion Podcast. Conversations related to the human resource challenges of an ever-evolving workforce. Hello, my name is Cindy Ann Thomas. I'm a principal with Littler and a co-chair of our firm's EEO and diversity practice group. I partner with our clients in the diversity and inclusion space with a focus on advising on, as well as developing and providing legally compliant training and education initiatives. Articulate. According to Merriam-Webster, as an adjective, this 10-letter word means to explain your thoughts or feelings clearly in words. Also, to express oneself readily, clearly, and effectively. Articulate. Sounds like a rather benign word for the most part, but we'll come back to this. Earlier this month, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson was confirmed as the 116th Supreme Court Justice. And in the weeks leading up to this historic confirmation, people around the country and the world turned in to witness the Senate hearings for this brilliant and accomplished jurist who was on the cusp of ascending to the highest court in the land as the first black female justice. As a result of the vetting and inquisition phases associated with the confirmation process, we often heard feedback and questions from certain senators prefaced with variations of how articulate Judge Jackson was. A cum laude, Harvard Law graduate, and a federal appellate court judge who has authored nearly 600 decisions in her judicial career. And every time I heard the word articulate, I felt the collective gnashing of teeth around the globe. As many wondered why and how Black people should be continuing to endure these kinds of macro invalidations. Yes, I said macro because we can't keep calling this small stuff. Over the years, we've heard the A word used to describe noteworthy figures in this country, like the first Black Secretary of State, the late General Colin Powell, the first female Black Secretary of State, Condoleezza Rice, the first Black President, Barack Obama, and our first Black Vice President, Kamala Harris. And as much as the word may be objectively championed as being a compliment, that will depend on who is giving it and who is receiving it. Because these tiny paper cuts of disrespect are increasingly landing like sheer sledgehammers on people of color and on black people in particular. I reserved an exploration of this troublesome word for the past few weeks, but with her honor now safely confirmed, and as I had promised friends and associates in my network that we need to talk, well, I'm making good on my promise today. And to have that talk, I've invited a special guest, Professor Intia DeShields. Professor DeShields is an assistant professor with the Department of English and Language Arts at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. Her research has examined the African-American language variety in Baltimore, in which she explored the uniqueness of the Baltimore accent. Additional research includes the sociolinguistic intersections of racism and rhetorical strategies in response to Afrocentric rhetoric. Dr. DeShields is currently working on a collaborative research project to engage Baltimore City Public Charter Schools, sixth graders in culturally sustaining pedagogy to improve phonemic awareness, reading comprehension, and the motor mechanics of writing. Professor DeShields, welcome to the show. Greetings. I watched all the confirmation hearings for the last three Supreme Court nominees, Justices Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Barrett in the past five years. And I don't recall hearing the word articulate for any of them. So did I just imagine that symphony of groans and eye rolls or did that recurring remark 
about Judge Jackson's ability to essentially speak well strike you similarly? Absolutely. I think that what often happens for Black people is that we know on our side of things what is implied by that phrase. On the other side of things, for non-Black people, what may seem like a simple statement of observation is filled with conscious and subconscious biases and prejudices. And so though non-Black people may not understand exactly what they are saying for the receiver, we know very well what is implied and what's meant by that phrase. And we're off. Let's start by unpacking the word. What's wrong with the word articulate as a compliment in general? Well, the thing is, there's nothing wrong with the word articulate as a compliment. We would often, uh, if you think about children, if you hear a child who has great diction and fluency in speech, then you might say, oh, she's very articulate for a five-year-old. Right, because the expectation is that for a five year old or for a four year old, they are still developing their speech habits, their language, uh, their understanding of language is still in development. And so the expectation is that they don't yet have a command of the English language. But when you use that phrase to refer to or to acknowledge the speech patterns of an adult, An adult who, if we now put this in relation to class and education, an adult who has the same level of education, if not more than the person who's offering the compliment, then that's when you start to squint your eyes and raise an eyebrow because Mm -hmm. there's something else that is being said. Mm -hmm. And so again, in general, there's absolutely nothing wrong with the word articulate as a compliment or simply as a description for someone's speech fluency. But uh, language or words become problematic when the user's intentions, conscious or subconscious, are fraught with bias and prejudice. So Professor DeShields, fill in the apparent missing parts to the sentence when the compliment is directed at a Black person in light of the context that you just provided. You are so articulate. For a Black person. Uh (laughs) (laughs) And I say person just to, you know, to cover all bases, but you're so articulate for a Black person. What exactly do you mean Mm -hmm. by that? So it's a polite alternative to wow, (laughs) essentially, because as I'm hearing it, you were saying that the white person is complimenting the eloquent black person for essentially surprising them. Yes, that's exactly what is happening. So when we think about language, we are socialized to perceive language or to perceive certain standards, to perceive users a certain way. And so when we have then a listener who comes to that speech engagement with preconceptions about how this person is going to sound, that's when you have the shock and awe of, oh, you don't sound the way I thought you would sound. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, well, what exactly did you think you were going to encounter? And at that point, that's when things become awkward, because if you are to then actually ask someone in that moment, what did you expect? If we confront expectations, Mm -hmm. what did you expect? And if that person is honest with themselves and honest with the person they're talking with, then they will say wholeheartedly, you know what? I had stereotypes in my head about how you would sound and how you use the English language. And so I apologize for bringing or projecting my biases onto you. That's how the ideal interaction would go. (laughs) But we know that that's not what happens. 
what happens is we simply receive the brunt of a hammer that consists of those words, you're articulate for a Black woman or you're articulate for a Black man you're articulate for a Black person without really confronting for themselves what that means. The thing is, for the Black person, I would say, for the most part, there's no shock. Mm. Unfortunately, there's no shock in that that sort of aggression, linguistic aggression, is anticipated Mm. in certain cultural contexts. And so the shock value is extremely low. However, for the Black person who's receiving that statement, they now have to contend with, how am I going to deal with this person moving forward? So when Black people are hailed as articulate, it often lands in such a way so that the person is some kind of exceptional credit to the race, is what you're saying. And there's a a 2021 McKinsey and Company report that seems to back up that finding, in particular, where it found that Black women are more than three times as likely as white women to hear people express surprise at their language skills or abilities. And we certainly saw that during Judge Jackson's confirmation hearings. Now, related to this remark of being articulate is you don't sound black. And you were alluding to that as well. And it's a loaded remark that intersects with class and education in this country, doesn't it? Absolutely. So I think on the side of exceptionalism, the person who uses that comment is sometimes placing that person the non-Black person who's using the, the statement of you're articulate for a Black woman is sometimes placing that person in a category of exceptionalism, but more often than not, they're placing them in a category of standard and acceptable. And so at that moment, if we think about language socialization and how our language and socialization informs our identity. And so in that moment, the non-Black person who is now assessing the speech act from a Black person is saying, ah, we have common ground. You speak my language. So now I see you as the standard. You meet my standard and I see you now as acceptable. So I'm careful to say that it's always exceptionalism. In some cases, sure it is, but in most cases, it's really a point of identification to say, you meet my standard and I now see you as acceptable. So let's talk a little bit more about the broader cultural insinuations with the word then. Is the word based on Eurocentric ideals of speech and language, given this context that you're giving with respect to the acceptability and the standard? Sure, well, the word I would say describes a speech act and the characteristics of the speaker. It transitions, however, from an observation of characteristics when the intention seems to be informed by a cultural standard. And that's when we get into the Eurocentric lens, that cultural standard. In the case of non-Black people using articulate to describe a Black person, it is that they have now filtered that speech interaction through a cultural lens that is Eurocentric. And it's not necessarily an observation about the speech act, like the fluency of the speech or the clarity of ideas, but about the person who is presumed to be inarticulate Mm -hmm. or presumed to just have speech patterns that are not acceptable to them. Professor, how is it that we can have Black speech or even white speech? in a country whose populations are shaped by so many people from so many countries and in so many regions with their various dialects? Culture. (laughs) 
in a nutshell. Culture informs so much and our use of language is informed by culture. What happens oftentimes in America when we are to ask someone, does America have a culture? We sometimes bring up this idea of a melting pot that we're all just kind of living in this pool of monoculturalism. That is not the case. And what happens is that we, when we think about, again, language socialization and therefore our identities, that is where we often hear those cultural differences. So language is one of the most salient yet least understood means for creating our identities. And we can't think about it simply as a list of characteristics. However, there are certain characteristics that are unique to different language communities. And so Black speech does have a particular sound. I would argue that only someone who is part of that community, though, is in a position to assess what that sound is mm -hmm. or is not. When we think oftentimes about Black speech, people think about African-American English or the AAV, African-American Vernacular English Variety. But in this case, we're not talking about the grammatical rules that are unique to African-American English. What we're talking about are the characteristics that mark Black speech patterns. And those speech patterns are often demonstrated in intonation and inflection. It's simply how we deliver certain words. It's an accent. And so for many Black speakers, there are characteristics that if you are a part of that community, you can identify. For non-Black speech patterns, that's when we think about, if we're to, to just go back a couple of decades and think about our parents or our grandparents and how they had a phone on the wall in the house. And when they would receive a phone call, they would switch from their home style to their phone style. Mm -hmm. And that phone style often mimicked non-Black speech patterns. So that's when you would hear the, the high pitch and the raised inflections. Hello, how are you? Absolutely. Oh my goodness. And so when you're at home, however, for a lot of Black speech patterns, the tone is a little lower, the pitch is a little lower, and the inflections are not raised at the end of sentences usually, but they drop. And so when people say you don't sound Black, especially for a Black person who's making the observation, it's usually because culturally they know what the speech patterns are for Black speakers. For a non-Black person, however, that's when it gets tricky and awkward because who are you mm -hmm. to assess my cultural <laughs> speech patterns? Right, right. right. Very interesting. Now, you know that critics of the kind of examination that we're engaging in here and over a word that is intended to be a compliment will say, well, how thin skinned can people be? You would say what to that charge? It's a compliment. I'll go further. I tell people who are white and black that they're articulate. Then what? Mm -hmm. At that point, this is where we have to go back to intention. You have to consider the context. And in the study of pragmatics and critical discourse analysis, context matters. What physical and social factors inform that statement? And then to go a step further, what socio-psychological factors inform that statement? What are you bringing to this interaction to lead you to the point 
that you feel compelled to assess my speech patterns? What factors are at play that have led you now to make a critical judgment about how I sound? And critics, non-Black and Black alike, who might say that a person who is receiving this observation might be thin-skinned, then again, what are your intentions really? And is it even necessary to make that observation? Is it necessary to state your thoughts about how I sound? I think in most cultural contexts, it is sometimes considered rude and abnormal to make comments about how, especially an adult, how they sound or how they talk. Even if they're using maybe a word out of context or if they have made a grammatical gaffe in a statement they've made, it's considered typically rude to make a comment about something that someone has said, especially if we're not talking about a debate. And that's what I would say to anyone who says, well, how thin skin? Well, what led you to make the statement? Well, let's create some hallways here, some space for somebody who wanted to compliment somebody's communication style and regardless of their race. Is it then just safer to say something like, Ava's a great speaker or Deshaun is really skilled at putting together compelling presentations? Absolutely. In a nutshell, it would be completely appropriate to offer a compliment to say, you made a strong argument. I did not anticipate feeling persuaded or being persuaded in such a way. <laughs> you have managed to make me see things differently based on whatever arguments or examples you have presented. Oh my goodness, I had no idea that was a factor in why you made this decision. The thing is, because we are human beings who have the ability of using language to articulate, mm -hmm. to share our thoughts and ideas, there are all sorts of ways we could do it. There are thousands of words we could use to indicate or communicate to someone our shock, our awe, or even our joy about being exposed to something new or having an idea explained in a way that we just did not anticipate. So again, when we think about that statement that someone might say is intended to be a compliment, then we have to turn it back on them. What are your actual intentions here? Right. And if you are willing to confront your biases, then we can actually have a conversation. Otherwise, you've now put up a red flag <laughs> that the Black person now has to navigate in order to feel comfortable in that relationship or in any future interaction with that non-Black person. Fair point. Now, you're undoubtedly familiar with the 2013 book, Articulate While Black, by H. Sami Alim and Professor Geneva Smitherman. For the sake of any listeners who have not read the book, it was a key cultural linguistic expose of the intersection between language, race, class, and education in this country. Professor, your thoughts about the takeaways from that book? So I haven't read this book in a while, but I did read it when it came out. Mm -hmm. And I think overall, Judge Brown Jackson's confirmation hearing placed American racial politics in the spotlight for those who do not experience it on a regular basis. Language 
again, is a significant form of symbolic power. For the book Articulate While Black, what they've managed to demonstrate is that modes of speaking for a listener provides us cues to assess politics. Generally, the lack of social cues that align with a particular cultural discourse allows a speaker to gain symbolic power of neutrality. In the case of Judge Brown Jackson, she won in part because she maintained a symbolic power of mm -hmm. neutrality. Mm -hmm. She didn't give away anything that could be used to align her with a particular political discourse or political set of ideas. If we're talking about a judge, that is a great thing because yeah. a judge should absolutely be neutral. And what many of the lawmakers were attempting to do and what they were caught off guard by is her high skill level with not only English or the English language, but more so her articulation of a neutral perspective. And her, and, and her demeanor, notwithstanding those constant uh, chides, didn't waver. She didn't feed into the other stereotypes that could have come as a result of not staying neutral. Absolutely. And so for the book Articulate While Black, if we are to consider the role of language use, one would begin to think about language as an extension of the culture to which we are most aligned. Culture informs how we use language. It also informs how we assess a person's alignment or disalignment with our culture and potentially our values. How can we use then this most recent episode on the use of the A word with respect to Judge Jackson to continue taking the national dialogue on race to the next level so that we don't have to keep having this same conversation every time an overqualified Black person in this country ascends to a high-ranking position? The simple answer would be for non-Black people to deal with their biases and their prejudices. Deal with them, confront them, right? What if you have to go to therapy <laughs> and, and don't lean on your black friend <laughs> to offer that cultural therapy or that racial therapy for you, but confront it for yourself. If they are willing to confront how they have been socialized to view not only language, but language users, then we would be able to get past this as a reoccurring issue of language aggression in the workplace. That's a tough lift, getting it people is. to realize that they are delivering microaggressions with these kinds of comments. Absolutely. Okay, so let's go to breaking the cycle of this thorny little expression. Solutions. Professor, when a white person tells me that I'm articulate, I will share this, and it's happened periodically over the years, I typically say, thank you very much. So are you, right? And I say it with a smile. Then I inject a pregnant pause while I am still smiling, so that they can just let that marinate for a moment. Because during that pause, I've essentially created a moment of personal reflection that I get to experience along with them. The learning takes place in less than 30 seconds. In the first few seconds, there's a look of confusion because why would I be surprised that they should be anything but articulate? And then the realization, the look of touche and the smile of resignation as to what just took place. 
offensive or effective? Effective, absolutely. And potentially offensive, as offensive as receiving the compliment in the first place. (laughs) (laughs) Understood. Now, I was born in Trinidad and I grew up in Canada, but regardless of whether or not the person knows of those details, I'm not offering them because that gives them an absurd out, if you will. And I suspect you know where I'm going with this comment, because if I give that background, I just end up feeding the sociocultural riddles of this issue, because my experience with these kinds of interactions is that my particular heritage has led some to say something like, oh, well, that explains it. And that's not helpful to this issue and this recurring problem that we're talking about. So simply returning the compliment has always been my strategy. And again, I'm not sure if you or anyone else out there listening would qualify it as perhaps passive aggressive, but in case you do, can you provide some other strategies for diffusing the emotions for recipients of this supposed compliment for our listeners? I like solutions. And we should all be solution oriented. If we see a problem, how can we now solve it? For the person who's receiving the comment, you could easily give the person a side eye, which happens often, (laughs) or you could ask, what do you mean by that? And in that moment, that non-Black person is now in a position to articulate for themselves what they actually meant. And it opens the door for a conversation if that Black person is willing to have a conversation. Right. Now that's a delicate balance because in a workplace scenario, there's always a concern about how the person who has received the comment can bring it up in a way that won't affect the relationship with the person who utters the statement, and especially when there is an imbalance of power. So where a Black employee, for instance, who wants to call out a leadership member's comment, how would they handle the situation? In addition to following whatever human resource protocols there are, Mm -hmm. in the moment, according to context, ask, what do you mean by that? And the simple asking of that question will force a person now to think about what factors have informed their statement. It provides clarity for the person who received the compliment, and it allows the person who made the compliment to now think for a moment about why they've even felt the need to assess a person's diction or ability to articulate an idea. Understood. Listen, I want to go back about 14 years. And I bring this up because you had alluded to the issue of switching before. Do you recall the story when the then president-elect Obama, who had already been praised as highly educated and articulate, went into the landmark Ben's Chili Bowl in Washington, D.C. And when the waitress asked him if he wanted change from the $20 bill he had given her, he responded, now we straight. (laughs) And I remember how many cool points he struck with certain segments of the voting public. But that kind of language would not have earned President Obama membership into the articulate club. And I recall the talk around that having to do with how savvy politicians know how to use coded language to strategically connect with different groups. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit about racial bilingualism and the concept of linguistic code switching that you had mentioned earlier. And, you know, and for the benefit of all of our listeners, just make sure that we're all on the same page about what code switching is. Code switching is when you actually change your mode of delivery. So 
you might switch from using standardized American English to now using African-American vernacular English. Both forms of English have a set of grammatical rules that are expected to be followed if the receiver is to hear you as using this particular code. Mm -hmm. So as the encoder of that message, you have to decide what code am I going to use at this moment. For former President Obama, he made a snap decision to switch from the standardized American English code that has its own set of grammatical rules to now switching to the African American English code that has its own set of grammatical rules. And so that kind of code switching is something people participate in often. Some people call it style switching, but I would say that style switching is not always a shift in code as much as it is the style of delivery. Is it inauthentic? Is it savvy? Is it, is it necessary for cultural survival and particularly for people of color to switch it up? Well, I would say that it's only inauthentic if it's not yours to use. If it's something you are only putting on as a veneer for that moment, then absolutely it's inauthentic. Now, to determine whether or not something is inauthentic becomes very complicated, right? Because who are we now to say that a person's use of this code is not authentic to who they are? The indicator, however, will be if they don't use the code correctly. So if they're not using the code correctly, then a regular user of that code could say, well, I can tell this is not true to them. Or as some might say, I can tell they're not true to this. <laughs> however, they're still attempting to use the code. And so for a politician, it's absolutely savvy. I think for any person, politician or civilian, we code switch and style shift and play with language because it is a privilege of being a human being. It is a privilege to simply enjoy the sound of words, to play around with words, to learn new words, and to learn new ways of saying things. And so I'm careful to assess someone as being inauthentic versus authentic, but would say that for the person who is in that interaction, they can usually tell in that moment if that exchange is genuine and authentic, or if it is an attempt at appropriation or simply at an attempt at survival. And in which case, even if it is survival, that is sometimes okay. Because as human beings, we have to navigate different cultural and social circles. And in order to navigate those social circles, we have to learn the mode of communication. And there's always a learning curve. And until you master that particular code or mode of communication, there will always be some awkwardness. But in the case of President Obama, I'm located in Baltimore City. Our mayor is Brandon Scott. He's a young guy. And he often shifts in his code where he'll go sometimes from using standardized American English to then employing a Baltimore dialect. And it is in those moments often authentic. People pay close attention to it because he is a politician, but people also value it because they can see that, okay, he's connected to his city. His identity now is kind of solidified as a Baltimorean. And so for many people, politician or not, survival is natural and our style shifting and code switching are also just a regular part of how we communicate. So does code switching complicate the debate about the word articulate? <laughs> yes, in that it all depends on who's saying it <laughs> and it depends on the context in which it's being used. 
that's when it gets complicated. And that's also why I said early on that the word itself is not bad. It's not wrong to use the word articulate and articulate as a description for how a person uses language is not always a bad thing. It really depends on the intention behind the user. There's a great book. It was initially published in 2008, but it's called The Everyday Language of White Racism by Jane H. Hill. And one thing she says in this book in assessing the speech habits of white Americans and Samoans is that intention is what truly informs how we now interpret a speech act. So for a white person, then to say that I'm coming to dinner or I'll come to dinner later is a statement that is just true. It is a statement of intention. I'll come to dinner later. But for a Samoan, if the person doesn't come to dinner, then they see that statement as a lie. Whereas for the white American, it was simply, if they don't make it, it wasn't a lie. It just mm -hmm. means that I didn't make it, but my intention was to come. So if we think about that, everything is always open to interpretation. And as humans, we are intelligent beings and we are always in a process of interpreting our environment, interpreting our social interactions, interpreting what we see and interpreting what we hear. And so we can't forget that America is wrought with all sorts of historical acts that inform how a Black person might receive something that for a non-Black person seems like a compliment. It seems like it's something simple. It seems like a simple assessment of fluency or clarity of argument, but it is now filtered through a lens that is also culturally informed and now has to figure out what it means in relation to memory, in relation to history, in relation to all of the other interactions that person has had with a non-Black person and how they've, the people who came before them, have used that word to describe them. In other words, culture provides context. Absolutely. Listen, I know that I have largely dedicated our entire conversation to one word, but that's really to underscore just how aggravating the word is for so many Black people. And even though we were dealt a fair share of the kind of othering we are talking about with the televised hearings of Judge Brown Jackson, I wonder if you would weigh in on whether you think the rise in remote work due to the pandemic has provided a bit of a respite for people of color from microaggressions like these with fewer in-person interactions from a workplace context. Yes, I've read a few articles over the past year that have touched on the mental health of Black workers and how this pandemic has provided a bit of respite from the microaggressions and linguistic aggressions they receive on a regular basis. One of the studies that you may be referring to might be the one last year conducted by the Slack think tank, Future Forum, where they found an astonishing 97% of Black respondents in the US said that they preferred a fully remote or hybrid workplace with just 3% of Black workers saying that they wanted to return fully in person. And it had to do with the ability to managing stress more effectively in working from home. And the stress includes the micro and macro invalidations like the ones that we are talking about. 
Yes, absolutely. And that is one of them. The pandemic provided a bit of respite from the constant onslaught. And it's sometimes so subtle that even for Black people who experience it, we sometimes have to go through a processing of an interaction that takes place now. The interaction happened. It could have only been 15 seconds, but now you spend the rest of your day reflecting on that one moment and how it made you feel. And now you have to figure out how do I respond? Should I go back and say something? Should I just let it go? And then it just adds on to the daily stress of the work itself. And so for many Black workers uh, who are interacting with non-Black people on a regular basis, those microaggressions are sometimes so subtle, but they do add up over time. So it's no wonder that Black workers would prefer virtual work so Mm -hmm. that they can avoid. And this is unfortunate for workplace culture. When you have employees who are trying to avoid other workers, but if you have workers who don't know, they are imposing aggressions upon their coworkers, then it creates an unhealthy work environment for at least one of those people. And so to figure out a way of escaping that hurt, that pressure, that violence, then virtual work becomes an ideal option. Yes. And that's why we're having the conversation, hopefully to provide the information that we are in having this conversation to people who are listening. Professor, as we wind down, I hate to put you on the spot. But as a dedicated scholar of sociolinguistics, is the word just so saddled with baggage that we shouldn't use it for Black folks? That's tricky. You said that we shouldn't use it for Black folks. Okay. We universal we. The universal we. Words are like tides, if you will. They have highs and lows. And sometimes words during a social certain period or historical era are in frequent usage and people use it regularly. And then eventually it just tails off and people don't use it anymore. So I think that what is happening now with your podcast, with Judge Katanji Brown Jackson's confirmation, with all of the research that scholars have produced in just the last decade alone, it will lead to people using that word less and less. Mm -hmm. It will lead to people figuring out what socio-psychological factors they are bringing to their communicative interactions, to their intercultural interactions, and it will lead them to think carefully about what they say to people who are of a different background than them. To say that we should just leave articulate alone altogether as a collective we also means that we should no longer use it to describe an exceptional child who is Black. And that's just unfair. But if we're talking about adults, then adults should take the initiative to figure out what is happening in this moment to make me feel shock and awe. Have I been persuaded? Have I been moved? Has this person said something to make me want to change my behavior or my attitude? And if so, how am I now going to tell this person Well done. As you say that, I wonder what your hope or your vision 
for a conversation around this word will be 25 years down the road. I hope we're not talking about this word <laughs> 25 <laughs> years down the road. I hope 25 years down the road that people have figured out how to express themselves and have figured out how to say, oh my goodness, you have such great ideas. I love the way you said that. Or I hope they're able to say, you know what? I don't quite agree. I have a different opinion. I truly hope that 25 years down the road that especially non-Black people will figure out how to confront their biases so that this is no longer an issue. Will we see some parenthetical reference to the Merriam-Webster definition, perhaps to it being Old English, spelt with an E, Old English, or archaic? Possibly. <laughs> <laughs> Often used <laughs> between the 2000s, or we'll say between the late 20th century. Yes, yes. <laughs> Professor, thank you so much for bringing some light to the word articulate, such a seemingly harmless word. But as you made very clear from our conversation, it's a word that packs quite a powerful sociocultural punch. Cindy Ann, thank you so much for inviting me on to talk about articulate as compliment. Again, I hope that we can figure out sooner than later how to use our words, how to express ourselves to indicate our joy or frustration with different ideas uh, better than simply using such a um, loaded word to describe a person who is Black and explains their ideas well. And Taya DeShields, Assistant Professor with the Department of English and Language Arts at Morgan State University in Baltimore, Maryland. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank you. As always, I certainly hope that you have all appreciated this podcast as much as I have enjoyed bringing it to you. Please feel free to reach out to us at cathomas at littler.com if you should have any questions about this episode or if you would like to discuss any component of your organization's diversity, equity, and inclusion needs with me or another Littler attorney. Thanks for listening. The purpose of this program is to provide helpful information for employers addressing the latest developments in labor and employment relations. It is not a substitute for experienced legal counsel and does not provide legal advice or attempt to address the numerous factual issues that arise in any employment-related issue. To discover other labor and employment podcast series from Littler, the largest global employment and labor law practice, visit littler.com slash podcasts.